Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have our final episode in the Book of Acts. And here, Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers will discuss things that they learned along the way in their study, as well as what they would like to look into further as they continue to study the book. If you haven't yet, we do invite you to subscribe to our weekly newsletter in Medias Race. There's a link down there to subscribe in the show notes for you. And when you sign up, you'll get a weekly note from Peter Lightheart, a digest of everything happening at Theopolis, as well as our weekly YouTube videos a week in advance. We want to wish you all a very Merry Christmas, and thank you so much for listening through this series. And with that, here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeffrey Myers having a final conversation on the Book of Acts. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John. Brian Motes, as usual, is... Uh, in the background, turning knobs and uh, levers and making sure that the all of the uh, recording gets done and gets edited and is delivered smoothly out to you. Uh, Merry Christmas from all of us at Theopolis. Uh, we hope that you're having a blessed Advent season and that uh, the Lord shows his goodness and kindness to you as you celebrate uh, the gift of his son, Jesus. We know that many of you are in odd circumstances this Christmas season, and uh, we pray that the Lord would be with you and fill you with the joy of the season, uh, even if you are in a situation where you're forced into isolation or into smaller celebrations than you're used to. Uh, we pray that the Lord is gracious to you in all those situations. Now, we have completed a study in the book of Acts in the last uh, episode, and uh, we wanted to take a final stab at the book of Acts in, this, in today's episode and reflect on the things that we learned, things that were highlighted during the course of our study, things that we'll take with us, things that we want to study further as we uh, maybe a future study of the book of Acts. To get things rolling, I wanted to highlight the significance of the of the Advent theme in the book of Acts. That's not only because it's seasonal, but because that truly is a, uh, a theme in Acts. Jesus tells his disciples in the Upper Room Discourse that he's going away, but then he says, he will come to them. I will come to you. I will be with you. And in the next breath, he's talking about the gift of the comforter, the spirit who's going to come and accompany them. So Jesus departs, and that happens at the beginning of the book of Acts, but then he sends his spirit, which is his own presence, with his disciples. Uh, And so we have at the beginning of the book of Acts, uh, not only a departure, but we also have an arrival. We have an advent of Christ through the spirit, and he is with his disciples until the end of the age, as he promised them. Uh, he's in with his disciples in the role of the Spirit. But that's not the only advent in the book of Acts. We have a series of advents of the Spirit as the Spirit falls in different groups. But we also have an interesting phenomenon where, where different disciples, apostles, preachers, servants of Christ become kind of alter egos of Christ. And each one of their uh, life histories is shaped by the, the life history of Jesus. We've talked about this repeatedly in our studies. The Spirit is at work in them to mold their lives so that their lives are a, a reliving of the life of Jesus, a recapitulation of the life of Jesus. And in each of those cases, each of those disciples, preachers, apostles is like another advent of Jesus. Uh, 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 this came to me 
uh, many years ago, particularly when studying Acts chapter 7 and thinking about Acts chapter 6 and 7, thinking about Stephen. Stephen's ministry mimics the ministry of Jesus. He does wonders. He uh, debates with opponents of the gospel. He overcomes those opponents in public debate and nobody can stop him. He's accused falsely by the Jews that he offends. Ultimately, he's put to death and his dying words are words that echo the words of Jesus from the cross. And what what we have in, in Stephen is kind of like another advent of Jesus. Uh, the D- Jews of Jerusalem were confronted by Jesus himself. Now the spirit is poured out. The spirit has filled Stephen. And Stephen is another uh, another means of the presence of Jesus. He's another, as it were, embodiment of the life of Jesus in the midst of it, in the midst of Jerusalem, confronting the Jews again with their uh, sin against Jesus and confronting them with the possibility of repentance and turning from their sin. And so we, we see that repeatedly. I think maybe Stephen is the most obvious example, but Peter is a kind of new coming of Jesus. Paul's ministry is kind of a new coming of Jesus. And I think the the Gospel of Acts sets, or the Book of Acts sets a trajectory that the churches. The church as the body of Christ, as the church arrives in different places, is like a new advent of Christ. It's like a new advent of the Spirit. Whenever a missionary goes into a new virgin territory, he's bringing the Spirit and the gospel and the presence of Jesus to that new territory. As churches gets plant, get planted, they're the, the advent of Jesus in that new, in that new location. So uh, Acts gives us, I think it, you have a, this repeated theme of, of advent. Uh, Jesus comes definitively. The son comes definitively in his birth as a man, uh, but then by his spirit, he comes repeatedly until he comes finally uh, to judge the living and the dead at the last day. Uh, and Acts is kind of laying out that theology of Advent. I don't know if any of you want to expand on that point or um, begin by talking about the things that you found particularly helpful or fresh in our recent study of, of the book of Acts. Maybe a quick expansion on it. I mean, I was struck, as you say, by the the Jesus-shaped ministry of all the apostles and so forth, um, but particularly by how the way that works itself out theologically. So, you know, we, we see the apostles enacting the ministry of Christ and um, uh, Stephen or Philip in a very Emmaus-like, um, Emmaus Road uh, way, and Paul is then told that he is persecuting Christ as he persecutes the church. And all that just strikes me as as really interesting because the doctrine of union with Christ and the union between Christ and the church is absolutely fundamental to Paul's whole theology in, I don't know, Romans 6 or Ephesians 2 and Colossians 3 and so forth. And it just strikes me as interesting the way in which all that is present in the narrative, this idea of, of union with Christ um, in in Acts narrative, and then he's sort of uh, exposited more theologically in the letters. Yeah, that's interesting because the the narrative brings out an aspect of that union with Christ that we may not pick up from the letters or not as clearly. Um, I think frequently union with Christ is seen as uh, rightly seen as a matter of communion with the Trinity, a communion with the Father and the Spirit, access to the Father, and, and those kind of. Uh, soteriological blessings. But what we see in Acts is that union with Christ works itself out um, in a mission missionally. So because we're united Christ, we're, uh, we're impelled, compelled by the spirit to carry on the mission of Jesus. Uh, and that's, um, I mean, that, that goes back to the opening verses of the book of Acts where we learned that uh, Paul uh, Luke has told what 
Jesus began to do, and Acts is talking about what Jesus continues to do. Now he continues to do it through spirit-filled apostles, and in union with him, they're continuing his mission. That's an aspect of the story that might be invisible to us, just how important these um, personal agents are, like Peter and Paul. Of course, Peter and Paul get the most uh, coverage. But as we finish this, I was struck by how important, how, how significant for the expansion of the kingdom and for the presence of Jesus in his saving power, uh, how important are these two figures, Peter and Paul, and what these men do, uh, their character, their, uh, their speech patterns, their, uh, their, their cleverness. We've talked about the, uh, how, how clever Paul is in ver- these various situations. And um, just, a, I think, a reminder to us that this is the way God works in the world. Not, uh, of course, He works invisibly and secretly, and and in in groups of people, obviously. But there are always leaders. There are always people that uh, blaze the trail, if you will. Um, and um, that's Peter and Paul. The two stage character of biblical um, ministry, I think, is one of the things that particularly has stood out to me in the book of Acts. So within Stephen's speech, you have the double visitation pattern. You also have the pattern of the Eremite prophet followed, the desert prophet followed by the prophet in the land. That's already present within the Gospel of Luke. But you have the ministry of Christ succeeded by that of the church. One way of thinking about this that I found very helpful that James Jordan has suggested is the idea of a bridal movement that follows the movement of the bridegroom. And that's taking place within the book of um, Acts. And along with that, you can maybe think about this as a story of the advent of the Spirit. After the advent of Christ in the Gospel, in the Incarnation, you have the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. And it can be seen as part of a broader Trinitarian um, framework of mission. Um, Christ has gone to the Father. He sends the Spirit the spirit forms the bride, and then the bride is brought to the bridegroom, and all is brought to the father in the completion of the kingdom. And it seems to me that Luke is very aware of the theological and redemptive historical framework within which all of these things are taking place. It's not just a book, as I remember in the past thinking of it, as a book just of these great things that God did in the aftermath of Christ's ministry. This is the sort of extended coda of the gospel. Um, It's far more than that. There's a sense that this is, the redemptive history is continuing. Um, There is a structure of ministry taking place here that's provided by the ministry of the Spirit who's given by Christ. And all of this is a completion and perfection of what has been started in the gospel. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. This is a gloss on what you just at, uh, just said, Alistair. One of the things that struck me was how how uh, much Jesus teaching in Luke twenty four about uh, the the central the central theme of Scripture being Christ's sufferings and glory. How much how much of a role that plays in the Book of Acts. In one sense, it's it's the way the apostles teach teach Scripture and try to prove uh, Jesus as the Christ. They do it from beginning with the law of Moses and going on through the prophets as Jesus taught them to do. But it's also finding their own ministry and lives 
foretold in the scriptures. We find that right at the beginning of Acts with the uh, decision about uh, choosing another apostle to replace Judas. Uh, and they justify that by referring to a couple of Psalms. What Judas, what happened to Judas was prophesied and let another one take his ministry. That's also prophesied. So because of these scripture passages, uh, they're going ahead and, and they're forming the apostolate after what they read in the scriptures. So rather than seeing the scriptures fulfilled in Christ's suffering, Jesus' personal suffering and glory, they see that scriptedness of scripture extending on into their own lives and ministries. And that that gives them a sense of destiny. You have the, the little word day, it is necessary that, which uh, Jesus uses when he's talking about uh, scripture and how he fulfills scripture. It's necessary that the Christ should suffer. It's necessary that he should enter into his glory. And the apostles use that same kind of language. It's necessary that we do this because our lives have been pre-foretold and, and scripted by the scriptures. It's not just the way they're teaching that reflects Jesus' teaching in Luke 24, but it's also uh, the way they understand their own ministry. They see, they find themselves within that biblical story. I just wanted to go back quickly to Jeff's point about Peter and Paul and the way in which they're so fundamental to um, the spread of the gospel and what God does in the world. And um, related to that, I, I was struck when we went through this of the way in which God is careful to always connect um, experiences and spiritual experiences back to the church and back to the body and concrete individuals. So, you know, the Ethiopian eunuch, for instance, on, on the road said, you know, how can I understand this um, uh, unless someone explain it to me? And the answer wasn't just to keep reading and, and praying harder and so forth, but, you know, someone was sent. And um, when Saul was saved, it wasn't just this lone encounter. He was put in touch with Ananias and joined to the body. And likewise, Cornelius and Peter were put in contact with one another because they kind of each had half a vision, I guess, which which came together and, and confirmed one another. And um, I just found that really important, the way that um, uh, the body was united by, uh, by that way. And the whole movement was then just grounded within people. And I find that a very important counteractive perhaps to um, today when we're often encouraged to engage with um, abstract things and hierarchies and ideologies and so forth and some of that can be uh, important but just to be involved with people is, is um, fundamental to act and, and fundamental to Christian life and, and so I've, I found that quite striking. On that point, I wonder what we should make of the way that the narrative camera, as it were, follows just a few select individuals. Um, it's Peter and John earlier on, Philip, Stephen, and um, then it's Saul and Barnabas and, and Paul and Silas. And there isn't much beyond that cast of character. There's a few penumbral figures, but those are the key figures. When you read the story though you, you're meeting lots of other people along the way um christians from cyprus for instance that first brought the gospel to antioch or characters who are already in rome have established a church there and people like um priscilla and aquila who are obviously doing things apollos and others like that and you wonder why has luke framed the story this way it seems apart from anything else, it gives an almost iconic character to these key figures. And Paul, who has the gospel to the circumcision committed to him, 
and in the same way for um, Peter, gospel of the circumcision and Paul with the gospel for the uncircumcised. And both of them within their stories seem to represent something larger. Um, Paul is one who has, he's moved from darkness and blindness to light. And these are themes that he presents as the way in which Israel is going to be, um, or the gospel brings light through Christ. Um, Peter is the one who denies, and then later on is the one who experiences a sort of death and resurrection, as does Paul. And so that selection of these two characters as the principal frame within which we see the spread of the church seems to me not just to be accidental or fortuitous that Luke was around these figures. Um, There seems to be something more programmatic and intentional about focusing upon these individuals. And I'd be interested to hear what you make of that. Um, It certainly gives a more personal flavour to it, but there may be something more to it too. That was one of my reasons for bringing this up. It seems to um, encourage or at least set up the expectation that after Peter and Paul, there will be other men who have similar kind of leadership prominence in the church that um, people will look to, will follow, will imitate, will listen to. You know, this doesn't have to be some sort of of popery or anything like that, but this is how the early church develops rather quickly. You have have, uh, metropolitan bishops, you have regional kind of uh, characters and personalities, um, and, and that seems to be what's at least encouraged here when you read um, when you read the book of Acts. A couple things occurred to me, Alistair. One was, I, I think you were saying this or hinting at it, I'm not sure that you how explicitly, but the, the similarity of Peter and Paul and their, their storylines. Uh, you, you mentioned that Peter denies Jesus and then goes through this kind of death and resurrection. And Paul, Paul is a persecutor. So there, uh, that would be one one reason for the parallel. The other thing I think of is a point that uh, we made several times through the course of our studies is the way that this is kind of a, a sideways point uh, drawing from, from your observation that uh, there's a lot going on outside of the activities of these particular individuals. Uh, and we, we made the point several times that the spirit is forging ahead at times. And uh, in Samaria, for example, the spirit falls uh, and then the apostles have to come and kind of catch up with the spirit <laughs> and uh, and uh, get back in step with the spirit's program. Uh, so that you have these you have these little indications throughout the book that something else is going on that hasn't been fully narrated, and that's uh, gives you this sense that the spirit is active in what is the the margins or the perimeter of the story he's telling, but the the spirit is working beyond. Uh, he's working through these people, but he's working beyond it too. And the spirit is the main actor in the book of Acts. You know, I like the Jeff's comment too, that uh, this is kind of setting a trajectory for a way of reading history. And I, th- I guess you could say the same thing about the Old Testament, right? Surely there are a lot of stories worth telling, stories of faithfulness worth telling during the period of the Kings uh, that we don't hear about. The The focus is on a particular, particular dynasties in the Northern Kingdom and the Davidic dynasty uh, and uh, or the book of Judges, you know, you have other things going on in the book of Judges. We get a couple of glimpses in some of the stories like uh, Ruth and the first part of 
Samuel about uh, other things that are happening that the book of Judges doesn't tell us. But it does seem like you have a, a particular theory of history and the uh, importance of uh, leaders in moving history forward, that that seems to be a general, not just in Acts, but that seems to be a general biblical notion of history. And something of the fractal character as well, that you have the larger scale pattern of the story that's then being played out on the story of Christ and the church, then in the larger pattern of um, Peter or Paul's life, and then in smaller episodes within their lives. And at each stage, you're seeing something of, as it were, the hallmarks of the um, the providence of God working out this mission, that this mission clearly bears the marks of a divine mission that's being orchestrated um, for redemptive historical purposes. This is not just a set of accidental events that we're reading. Mm. Yeah. Related to that, Alistair, I was struck by some of the geography of the book. Um, it feels like a long time ago now, but we went through um, Genesis 10's genealogy, which is often called the Table of Nations, and the fundamental division of the human race is obviously into um, Shem and his descendants, you know, Semites, um, Ham, which I guess normally associated with Africa and sort of out southwestwards, I guess, from Israel, and then Japheth, so sort of upwards into Greece and, and Rome and, and beyond northwards. And um, I was struck by, well, I guess two things. You know, um, firstly, the way in which Jesus in his infancy makes contact with all these areas, you know, so born in Israel, um, taken immediately to Egypt, so into the territory of Ham, um, and then sets up residence in Galilee of the Gentiles, so more sort of Greek. And then likewise in Acts, we have this um, Pentecostal event which has the reversal of Babel kind of all over it Um, then the gospel starts in Israel um, almost immediately comes into contact with this Ethiopian um, eunuch heading sort of back to um, Africa and and beyond and then to Cornelius and so you've got that same sort of Shem Ham and and Japheth um, connection right up front and so it just struck me as interesting the way in which sort of uh, those three big um, chunks of, of mankind are mentioned right at the outset. Um, so there's obviously that intention of the global uh, domain of, of the gospel, but then it's slowly worked out in in history as, as the book unfolds. I want to go back to a comment Jeff made uh, a bit ago about the uh, character of Paul. I've, I've spent a lot more time over the years studying Paul's letters than I have the book of Acts. And uh, one of the things that came out in the as we went through the latter half of Acts is just the the shrewdness and the cunning and the courage of Paul. Uh, and I'm I'm curious now to go back and think through the letters again and with that um, personality now more firmly in mind and what what does that uh, what might that reveal about the the letters. Another thing that I'm interested in following up on uh, there were a couple of places where I came across essays that were uh, showing the uh, Luke's use of different classical sources. Uh, we we talked about this in one of our recent epi- episodes where we were talking about Paul's journey to Rome and uh, the the connections with the Odyssey and the Aeneid uh, come out um, uh, and sometimes virtual quotations from uh, the Odyssey that suggest to, to many commentators that uh, Luke was actually familiar with the text of the Odyssey. He's not just making a general allusion to some 
to some known story. But I, I'm, I'm curious to know how that works in general. There's a couple other places where that came out, but I'm curious to know how that works in general and what that might mean about Luke's purposes. He's writing a narrative that ends with the gospel going to the Gentiles. That's the climax of the, the narrative in uh, Acts 28. And uh, if he's weaving in different allusions and storylines from ancient mythologies and epics, uh, what is what? How is that serving that ultimate purpose? Um, you know, is he uh, is is he literarily incorporating the Gentile world into a biblical story, uh, in the same way that the Gentiles are being incorporated into Israel as they confess Christ and are baptized? Do you have a have a literary phenomenon that that echoes the or parallels the uh, the action of the story, as it were? We should probably comment on Luke's portrayal of Israel and her. Um, her faithlessness, at least in terms of leadership, because the book, remember, began with this question from the disciples about whether Jesus is going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time. And he basically says, well, you know, um, it's not for you to know when or that's going to happen. And then that question kind of looms over the whole narrative. And we discover as time goes by that um, Israel's pretty much uh, given up. Uh, her right, her um, <clears throat> privilege to be to manage the kingdom, if you will, and the church now has uh, has become the instrument of implementing Jesus' righteous kingdom. That that um, that question about Israel's faithfulness and the kingdom just goes goes through the whole book. Not to disagree with that, but one of the things that struck me as we went through the book carefully was uh, how persistent Paul is in still appealing to the Jews um, mm-hmm. you know it, right up to the right up to the last chapter right you know, he, he, you have the you have the long quotation from Isaiah that's the capstone of it but right up to the last chapter when he gets to Rome he's still wanting to meet with the with the Jewish leaders and persuade them so the the Jewish issue was more complicated for me after after we had gone through the whole book than it was in my more in my less my less informed position at the beginning of our studies. Well, even so, in in the end, there's still Paul, I mean, the very last paragraphs of the book is Paul pretty much turning away from the Jews for good. And it seems it seems as if by the by the time you get to the end of Acts, all the opportunities for repentance have been given, the second chance, you know, whether they listened to Jesus or not was one thing. Jesus gave them a second chance and sent the Spirit and the apostles. But it, it sure does seem like, in the end, um, they've had their opportunity, and they've shown themselves to be uh, unresponsive to the the, the possibility of uh, of restoration and repentance. Reading the development, one of the things that stood out to me was actually how Jewish a movement the early church was. That what you have in the Book of Acts is an identity crisis for the Jews, where they're going to have to decide between these different ways. And neither way involves remaining exactly the same. There's no way that they can remain the same after the um, hmm. the coming and the death of Christ and Pentecost. Something has to change. Either they have to take up arms against this or they have to join it. And so it's a winnowing process throughout the book and a gradual parting of the ways between two different approaches um, to the advent of Christ and the Spirit. And that is uh, 
um, something that's playing out in the division of synagogues and the persecution in Jerusalem, in events of rejection where Paul would then go on to um, go on to speak to the Gentiles. It's mission and counter mission. All of these things are playing out this fundamental crisis. And Israel's identity, it's very easy to read back into the book of Acts, a split that had already taken place. But that split was in the process of taking place throughout the book. It's not something that at the end of the book, you still have a Christian church that's overwhelmingly Jewish, um, even in the um, regions of the Gentiles. But it's one that is leading to this split of two different groups and the hardening of identity of identities on both sides. One other aspect that I thought would be good to discuss is Acts as a book of the Spirit. Um, they're very strong themes, I think, of prophecy. Um, Jordan has spoken in the past about the significance of a priest-king-prophet pattern for understanding the gospel, the synoptic gospels. And that pattern, which presents Luke very much in terms of prophetic themes, foregrounding prophetic elements that carries on into the book of acts i believe um there's the initiation of or the installation of the church in this prophetic role as the spirit comes upon them as there's the ascension of christ like elijah and then following elisha and then there's journey narratives there's an emphasis upon the agency of the spirit sons and daughters prophesying etc and i'd be interested to hear how you see that theme playing out within Luke's approach. How does he draw attention to this? What are some of the things that he's trying to achieve through foregrounding that particular um, line of the ministry of the church? I mean, I'm not sure I have two clear answers. I, I have a couple of quick observations. Um, uh, just quickly, if I can, I mean, I, I think that I'm less inclined than Jeff is to see the end of Acts as some... Um, very definitional moment where Paul has done with the with the Jews, just because we've heard statements like the end of Acts twenty eight before. So you know, Paul says very pointedly in Corinth to the um, Jews, you know, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And then straight afterwards, the ruler of the synagogue is converted, and large numbers of Jews uh, are converted. And then Paul goes to Ephesus and heads straight for the synagogue so i am I'm, I'm sort of yeah I, I i think i'm less inclined to see um acts 28 as as something some very watershed moment i don't know if we want to go on to talk about the spirit after that or if sort of jeff you want to say differently <laughs> well i i guess my my response is in terms of the narrative in terms of the book in terms of the bookends here about questions about israel and questions about israel's leadership especially Jerusalem, it kind of caps things off. I'm not suggesting, of course, that after uh, <clears throat> when the early church reads the uh, book of Acts that they should somehow think, oh, we don't need to take the gospel to the Jews anymore. Um, that That's not my intent. I don't think that was Luke's intent. But it does give us a, a, a pretty good, uh, uh, you know, sandwiched between these two bookends, there's a there's a progress in our understanding of the place of Israel in the world, and it's probably not what the well, I'm surely not what the apostles might have thought uh, when Jesus 
was ascending into heaven, giving giving them the commission. Uh, their their understanding of their place in the world and Israel's place in the world changed, um, and that's more what I'm suggesting than somehow the, it's it's you know at the end of the book of Acts and it's all over for the Jews and no Jew can ever be saved or or rescued or anything. But the nation of Israel is is because of her faithlessness and her leaders. Uh, uh, failure to live up to their vocation definitely gets sidelined and a church now uh, is centered in the kingdom. So you, you would put the stress not so much on loss of opportunity, but maybe lo- loss of authority or something like that. Yeah. Loss of, yeah. loss of their, their place in the world. Uh, it's, uh, it's shifted now. Uh, and wh- one of the things that's come out, what, what surprised me at the end of Acts, when we were all talking I mean, we kind of knew this, but how Paul's own self-conception, how Paul's self, his understanding of who he is and who the church is, is so very Jewish, so very rooted in the trunk line of uh, Israelite history. Uh, it, this comes out over and over again that he's not uh, introducing a new religion, but he's bringing to fulfillment or he's proclaiming the fulfillment of all the promises from Abraham all the way up through uh, the prophets. And so uh, I'm not trying to be anti-Jewish here in my comments. Uh, I'm just, it, it, it's it, that, I think that was really surprising how, to me again, how firmly rooted in Hebrew scriptures and Hebrew history Paul was. Yeah. Well, the things that Alistair and James said are the kinds of things that uh, complicated the the storyline for me, and I guess I would say that there's a different way to read the initial question that the that the, that the eleven pose at the beginning of the book, and the way that that works out. Jesus says it's not for you to know the times of the epochs which the Father's fixed, and then He says to the the eleven, "You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses, uh, Judea, Samaria, to the remotest parts of the earth." Um, Almost every phrase of that verse, that's Acts 1.8, has some uh, root in uh, the book of Isaiah. Uh, the gift of the Spirit is mentioned mm-hmm. in Isaiah as a spirit that renews Israel. You are my witnesses is uh, almost a quotation from, I think, Isaiah 43. A phrase of going to the remotest parts of the earth or the ends of the earth is again an Isaiah passage. So what Jesus is saying, it seems uh, plausible to say, is that that mission that was given to Israel is not going to be carried out by the 11 as the, the beginning of a new Israel and uh, a renewed Israel. And that 11, they're going to add a, they're going to add a 12th in the next episode. And then that body of 12 is going to be the, uh, the beginning the foundation for building up a new Israel throughout the book. So I, I, you could say in a sense, I think that the point that the, the church at the end of Acts is still overwhelmingly Jewish. You could, you could read the book as a, confirmation of the mission of the Jews, it's not the nation of Israel. You're right. The nation of Israel and the leadership of Israel has refused to hear the gospel. That's what Paul's aiming for at the end of the book. But you still have this remnant of Israel that's been preserved, and they are the ones that are actually fulfilling the Jewish mission, uh, which includes incorporating the Gentiles. That was always part of the Jewish mission. So uh, that's another way to, to read the trajectory of that statement at the beginning of the book, I think. So anybody no, want to disagree with that? Yeah. Uh, anybody want to uh, take up Alistair's question about the uh, spirit and particularly it sounded like Alistair wanted to stress the prophetic character of the church's mission. 
Well, rather than answer it, I, I had similar questions along the same lines. So I was struck, I guess, the by the the nature of spirit-inspired speech and the way in which Agabus could, for instance, um, utter one prophecy, which was very accurate, another which was, I guess, accurate in part. You could read it. Um, and the extent to which those utterances are um, authoritative and, and what sort of categories we should put them in because Paul didn't seem to necessarily deny the facts behind Agabus's prophecy um, but acted otherwise you know it said he was very content to you know go and be bound and, and, and end up in Jerusalem and I was wondering how that fitted in with um, prophecies in the early church and in Corinth where they're encouraged to be uh, weighed or evaluated or, or something along those lines so I, I had similar questions that's no help james you're supposed to have the answers <laughs> <laughs> well you, you said that i could flag up things i'd like to uh, look at more and so oh, okay. that okay. Into that. okay all right there you go <laughs> <laughs> i mean uh, it was a wayne grudem i think years ago wrote a book on prophecy in the new testament was a grudem grudem am i remembering rightly yeah uh and yeah. uh arguing that prophecy just as a has a different character in the new testament for some of the reasons that you're describing, it doesn't, you know, there's prophecies that aren't inscripturated. Uh, there are prophecies that are, uh, as you said, weighed and weighed and um, dismissed as, as not that they're wrong, but that they're not going to determine what people do. Like Agabus's prophecy about Paul, he, he doesn't, even if it's accurate, he's Paul, it doesn't keep Paul from going ahead to Jerusalem. So um, possibly that we're talking about a different, a somewhat different phenomenon of prophecy. The, the other thought I had was the, the the role that prophets have in, this gets into a different dimension of Acts, the role that prophets have in the Old Testament of uh, being in the position of advising rulers. And this is something that Jeff brought out. Um, he's brought out in previous lectures on Acts, but he brought out a, a number of times in our studies that uh, you have situations where there's some character in, the, in Acts who has, a, who has the ear of the king uh, and they are defeated in some fashion, in some kind of power struggle, and the apostles prove themselves to be more powerful, and then the rulers then become attentive to the apostles' words rather than to this false prophet. So uh, that would be that would be one aspect of the way it, it uh, works out, which it works into the issue uh, into the role of Israel within among the nations. It's related to that question as in Acts, uh, you have. Uh, Jewish figures in the Old Testament and also in the Book of Acts who have prominent positions in uh, in uh, in political settings, and then the apostles come along. They're the ones that now provide the the true guiding word, the true prophetic word in those in those situations. So it's part of that narrative of Israel and the church too. On Grudem's thesis, I wonder whether um, he's taking sufficient account of the many different types of prophecy that we have within the Old Testament itself where, for instance, in Numbers 12, you have distinctions between the way that the Lord reveals himself to figures like Aaron or Miriam and other prophets on their level and the way that he speaks to Moses face to face. And then in other cases, um, Saul prophesies uh, and the, the elders prophesy in chapter 11 of Numbers. And it seems in those cases to be something more like a form of ecstatic speech it's not inscripturated um there's less of a sense of um 
this must be preserved for the ages. Whereas mm. if you're dealing with a prophet like Isaiah or, or some other prophet that is given a special commission, there seems to be prophecy that's raised to a, a higher level. And so I wonder whether those sorts of distinctions will help us here. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I think on the on the point of prophecy, I think one of the things that's striking is the emphasis in Peter's Pentecost sermon on the uh, the gift of the Spirit that's poured out on all flesh in order to prophesy. So there's um, uh, you know uh, the church is a priesthood and and a company of kings. The church is also a company of prophets. The Spirit is the Spirit of prophecy for everyone, uh, which. I uh, think you think about different ways that that works out. Every member of the church has access to the counsel of God, which is the definitive privilege of the prophet. Uh, everyone can speak to uh, speak in the has the hearing before the Lord. Uh, you have all of uh, the church given certain role in proclaiming the good news of uh, of Jesus, uh, which also has prophetic dimension to it. So, the fulfillment of Moses' hope that all of God's people would be prophets that's a that's a striking. Uh, element and and I think in uh, in certain sectors of the church in in our reformed world, uh, one that doesn't uh, perhaps get the same uh, the the kind of emphasis that it should uh, because of our understanding of the cessation of uh, high level prophecy and the end of end of the canonization of scripture, um, we kind of kind of give short shrift to some kind of continuing prophetic gift in the church. But if the spirit is continuing in the church, then prophecy in some form has to continue in the church. There's another dimension to prophecy, um, in addition to the one you mentioned, Peter, about advising uh, rulers, advising uh, people in authority, um, and that is advising God. Uh, you know, the Amos passage where Amos interacts with, with God, or even back to Abraham, where Abraham uh, is uh, presenting an argument to God about uh, whether to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah or not, uh, and he's, he's called a prophet. Um, uh, I think actually, I think it goes back to Genesis 20 where, um, yeah, Abimelech is, is said, to, uh, said to go to Abraham because Abraham's a prophet and he'll pray for you. So I wonder where this aspect or if this aspect of prophecy, this, um, uh, this, I guess, prayer interaction with God, uh, and, and, um, asking God to do things and to, uh, to make uh, decisions. Where does that come in in the book of Acts, or, or does it? Prayer certainly seems to be prominent in the mission of the apostles. For instance, when they go before the council, their response to that is an act of prayer, mm. which leads to a sort of mini Pentecost event after that. They're constantly praying in the in the temple at the end of Luke, mm. and then it's in constant prayer that they select the um, replacement for Judas, and then later they're waiting for the Spirit. And at various points, their suggestion is that it's in prayer that they're directed at various um, parts of the mission um, to go to different places. So it seems that prayer and the Spirit's guidance really go together along with the way that the prophet was always functioning on a different sort of, um, in a different realm to the king and the priest. The priest very much is focused upon the sanctuary and the temple, the king upon the land. But the prophet is someone who goes out to the wider world and speaks to the nations 
around Israel speaks to the empires. And that prophetic element, I think, goes with the hand in hand with the emphasis upon the Orcumene, um, that this gospel is going out onto the sea of the nations. This is a new faithful Jonah. It's a new um, mission like um, the advisors of kings and rulers and emperors such as Daniel and the church is filling that prophetic role. And this is one of the reasons I think why travel is such an important theme. Mm. Yeah. And, and this is, this can't be applied woodenly, but I, we've talked about this before, at least I have, is this uh, sequence, this transition from priestly to royal to prophetic roles and acts one through five you're in Jerusalem, you're at the temple, you're basically um, just, you're just teaching accurately what Jesus has told you. Um, And then you move into Acts 6 to 12, and you're in a royal phase, if you will, you're in the synagogues, you're in the land. um, And there's, uh, there's an attempt on fratricide, killing Paul, which is a a royal uh, sin or sin associated with the kingdom. Um, And then when you get to Acts 13 through 28, Acts 13 is where, as you mentioned, Alistair, now you're out into the empire. You're going to Gentile cities. You're And the very first story there with Sergio Paulus is all about Paul replacing, remember, the false prophet, the false magus, the false wise man um, with, uh, with the church. And he actually replaces them. And so that the church becomes a prophetic witness, a prophetic advisor to uh, this this man who is the governor of, I think, what is it, Cyprus? Uh, so that there's this, there's this movement. I, and I, again, I don't want to apply it too woodenly, but it certainly seems to be a movement from priest to, to king to prophet in the book of Acts. And, and with special emphasis, as you said, Elster, on the prophetic movement in the last uh, the last section, last the third section of Acts. I think that brings out Jeff the part of the uh, one of the things that struck me, and I, I would have said this as a as a um, kind of principle before, and drawing from Paul's letters and other parts of the New Testament. But it was um, remarkable to me that that um, how Acts didn't portray an apostolic mission that was just a matter of conversions and. Uh, and of uh, church planting, but there's there as you were describing, there's this kind of political aim and political effects. I mean, one of the things that I'm just thinking about in the last couple of days has, you know, when Paul goes into a town, it's a public event. Um, there's, you know, he goes to synagogues, and synagogues are public gathering of Jews. He 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 argues with people in town squares, but uh, what the whole the whole mission is kind of carried out on the public stage. Rather than you know, kind of slipping into town and and meeting with uh, privately with a handful of people, and I'm not saying that never happens in Acts, but I think the the emphasis is on these public demonstration, public events that uh, challenge the whole system of the city where he arrives, or the whole system of the synagogue, and that public emphasis of the mission was quite, I think, is quite dramatic and, and something I, I I would have expected in principle, but I hadn't really worked it out uh, in detail in the Book of Acts before. Only to pick up quickly on Alistair's observation that prayer and prophecy go together. And as he said that, I was just struck by the fact those two activities are put together in um, 1 Corinthians 11 when it's talking about um, uh, men and women 
praying or prophesying with their heads uncovered or, or uh, covered, respectively. And um, I just wonder if, if sometimes we draw too sharp a distinction between those two things, and if you know, a more careful reading of Acts, say, would would suggest that in times of corporate prayer, I wonder if we should be more expectant for um, conclusions about sort of church issues and so forth to arise and emerge by means of those uh, times of prayer um, rather than necessarily thinking that they will come through prophecy you know that the um, yeah well we could t- keep talking about acts for a long time we've been talking about it for uh, the better part of a year I don't remember when we started but uh, we've been working through acts for quite a long time we're going to uh, finish our discussion at that point. Uh, thank you for listening, and we hope that the studies and acts have been edifying to you, uh, and uh, we look forward to our uh, future future studies together and hope you'll join us in those. Happy Advent and Merry Christmas to you all. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.